Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's program, Doha and the Future of the Oil Market. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. The information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement, and should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is at such person's or organization's sole risk. Later, you will have the opportunity to ask questions during the question and answer session. You may register to ask a question at any time by pressing the star and one on your touchtone phone. Please note this call is being recorded. It is now my pleasure to turn today's program over to Editor-in-Chief, Tom Wallen. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, and uh, welcome, everyone, to our April virtual roundtable. Uh, our topic is DOA and the future of the oil market. Um, and since the start of the oil price collapse over a year and a half ago, oil markets uh, have been looking for signs of recovery. I think we're all aware of that. And most recently, the prospect of a production freeze among major producers was seen as just such a sign of possible recovery. But the meeting in Doha on Sunday that was meant to formalize the freeze ended in failure, and that's left us with lots of confusion and uncertainty. Um, the purpose of the call today is to unpack what happened there and try to sort out through sort through some of this confusion. Um, to do that, uh, we have with us two of our in-house experts on OPEC and MIDI-C issues. Um, Alex Schindler uh, is our London-based news editor for Eastern Hemisphere, and Amina Bakker is a Dubai-based reporter who was at the Doha meeting. Um, the format today is simple. Um, I'm going to be asking uh, Alex and Amina questions here for the first 20, 25 minutes or so and then we're going to open it up to questions from the audience. So um, uh, I'm going to let's start with you. Um, uh, since you were there, uh, why don't you tell us what happened in Doha? Um, how did, in particular, how did the mood about the freeze deal change over the course of the day? Well, Tom, delegations started arriving in Doha on Saturday, and uh, the mood seemed very positive. Um, delegations from, from different OPEC and non-OPEC countries seemed very optimistic about their results of the meeting. Um, we had some delegations tell us that there was a pre-approved draft uh, of the agreement, so uh, the mood was very positive. Um, morning, uh, on the morning of Sunday, the meeting started, was due to start at around 8.30. Um, and the expectation was that it would take maximum an hour or two hours to uh, rubber stamp this deal and everybody would be ready to, to, to head back to their countries. But um, two hours passed and we began hearing uh, rumors of a new draft being presented by the Saudis, which included a condition that all OPEC members must be part of the deal. And it was clear that Iran hadn't sent, uh, didn't send a delegation to the meeting. So um, having that condition made it impossible for, uh, for a deal to be realized. Um, the, con uh, the, the talks continued. They resumed for about 12 uh, hours. Following that, uh, we, we finally got the, res the official results of the meeting, which was announced by the Qatari energy minister, and he said that they were unable uh, to reach an agreement on uh, the production freeze. Um, in between, we had also heard a lot of talk uh, that the Russian delegation was ready to leave the meeting after the Saudis had presented their second draft. 
uh, but were convinced by uh, the Qataris and other countries to resume talks. Um, we heard that uh, a lot of scenarios were discussed uh, during the, uh, the, the meeting, um, including the, the mechanisms of how the freeze would work, uh, also uh, how, I mean, how it would change fundamentals. And they tried to get around Iran not uh, being part of the deal, but uh, the Saudi delegation insisted on having that condition, and the, the deal fell apart. Okay, thanks. Well, that's that, that's fascinating. So, so Alex, you know, the, the failure of the the meeting to deliver an output freeze was a complete surprise, I guess, uh, as Amina said. Um, why do you think everyone got this wrong, and and why did Saudi Arabia uh, change its mind at the last minute? Thanks, Tom. Well, I, I think what we've gotten used to is that um, the oil minister Ali Naimi is. So the main spokesman for Saudi oil policy and and the technocrats around him are the ones in charge of kind of disseminating information about you know what uh, is actually going to happen uh what the Saudis want and what they intend to do and I think leading up to the to the meeting the, the signals out of uh, those people were it, it was very much uh in the in the sort of spirit of compromise that this freeze deal, while you know, not a spectacular deal by any standard, and actually wasn't really going to do anything, uh, you know, fundamentals-wise, what was sort of a, a path to sort of cooperation and showing that look, you know, we can get together and agree on something. Nobody has to sacrifice very much for this at all, um, and uh, it, it was sort of a departure from the kind of uh, big gulf between uh, most of the major producers since the start of this oil collapse. Uh, where people were expecting OPEC to cut production, and you know Saudi and, and a few of its close allies said basically we're not going to cut because we don't think it's the right response. Um, and th the freeze is going to be that kind of compromise that brings them all together. Uh, so I so I think everyone was watching that ball and saying that okay the Saudis are ready ready to kind of they're making signals they're ready to compromise everyone's willing to come together it's good for the oil market in general. But I, but you know, everyone knows in the background that oil policy, you know, is made by uh, the royal family in Saudi Arabia, and while they don't usually directly intervene, they do have the last word on it. And and I think, in retrospect, if you look at it, uh, over the last um, two weeks, uh, the deputy crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, who uh, has sort of burst onto the scene as as a major player in Saudi Arabia since his father uh, took the throne last uh, last year. Um, he he gave two interviews in the last two weeks, including one uh, on Saturday, the day before the freeze meeting, basically saying that uh, the only way Saudi Arabia is going to agree to a freeze deal is if Iran also agrees. And you know, people took notice of that, and and we wrote a number of stories on that, and as many other people. But I think that the mistake was believing that uh, the sort of technocratic assurances from uh, the oil ministry and the sort of general uh, technocrats in Saudi Arabia was was the actual uh, reality of, of what was going to happen. And in the end, um, we, we, we saw that wasn't the case. Um, you know, they actually did not, they weren't able to push through the agreement because they did not have the backing of, of the royal family. Okay, thanks, Alex. Well, Amina, what what does this outcome tell us about Saudi decision making? 
uh, on oil policy. Um, this, this seems to be something new. Well, there seems there definitely seems to be a noticeable shift in uh, Saudi oil policy dynamics and decision making. Um, Mohammed bin Salman has emerged as this unpredictable new voice uh, for for oil policy, and. Uh, since he had a, he, since he was appointed as head of the Supreme Economic Council, which oversees Aramco uh, and the oil policy file, um, that I mean the oil policy seems to have shifted under his direct uh, control. Um, and uh, delegates in Doha in attending the meeting thought the decision and insisting that Iran being part of the deal was more of a political objective, as uh, previously we had. Uh, Received a lot of comments. Uh, I mean, support. I mean, received comments from the um, energy minister, from the Saudi oil ministry, telling us that Iran didn't have to be part of the deal, given that it won't be able to reach its objective of raising production by a million barrels a day, um, and they expected around an increase of a maximum of around 300,000 barrels a day. So uh, his political motivation seemed to have. Um, Overcome. Uh, I mean, have, uh, it, it won. It won over Naimi's logic in the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Alex, turning to the the oil market, um, you know, the you know, I think, uh, you know, as you said, the, 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 there's not much impact here one way or the other on the supply demand balance, but it does. The, it, um, the, the Doha. Uh, failure, I guess, does seem to have shifted oil market sentiment and psychology. Um, How important do you think the immediate outcome is for the oil market, and what does it mean for prices? I think leading up to the meeting, there was a lot of talk that was basically like, this meeting can't fail because if we, and, and this is from the producer countries, and that's why kind of going back to the original sort of question you asked me about why it was a surprise is because the stakes are pretty hard, high to get a deal done. And, and most of the producer countries uh, weren't stupid. They'd seen in the last, well, you can even argue going back five years that OPEC has struggled to make any decisions. And and there have been a number of meetings that sort of have, have ended in disarray, even ones with fairly straightforward decisions to be made. So I there was a lot of focus on making sure this meal this meeting was not didn't sort of end in disarray um and and that meant the the producer countries wanted a lot of concern, a lot of um sort of reassurances that it everyone was going to be on board because they feared that if they walked into this meeting if you had 18 countries show up and then uh send signals to the market that this thing was going to work for about a month which is what they were that had been sort of the signal uh, and then it all kind of collapses that you are going to erase that, that $10 plus oil price bump that you got uh, over the last month or so um, that all those countries w- were, were very much enjoying. And so the, the fear was is that this thing all ended in, in kind of a uh, sort of a farce, then, uh, then the price would drop. Now, it did end in this sort of you know, farcical way, and, and the price hasn't dropped. In fact, it went up. Um, and you know it, it went down a bit today, but it still seems it's higher than it was on uh, you know when we went into the meeting on Sunday. So perhaps the market has already factored in that this freeze deal with you know they saw it for what it was, uh, which was basically 
uh, a, a deal to do nothing, and uh, and actually wasn't going to impact the fundamentals very much at all. So, you know, I, I think, what does it mean for prices? I mean, in the aftermath, I think we're seeing very little. In the long term, you know, you have to make the argument that the freeze is actually going to make a difference and help the market rebalance quicker. And, and I don't think anyone can really make that argument. Um, it, it, it just isn't, uh, there just wasn't going to be any sort of real hard um, you know, decisions on supply required to to make it actually make a difference. And, and I think... W- you know what the market was sort of looking at uh, with this sort of rise in prices is maybe not just um, this meeting, but also looking at the at the underlying sort of supply disruptions. And there are quite a few in the first couple of months of this year. You had Iraq, uh, you know, having a bunch of production out in the KRG. You had Nigeria with outage problems. You had the UAE taking a big chunk of production offline for extended maintenance. So there was a real supply. Um, disruption underlying that sort of bump of $10. Uh, so maybe, uh, you know, you can make the argument going forward that prices might be able to hold around $40, uh, even in, in the aftermath of a Doha collapse. Okay, well, thanks. And staying with you, Alex, you know, another question, I think, for the oil market is that we, you know, it, it appears that, um, you know, the internal political divisions in OPEC, especially between Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, they seem to have become sort of the, they were the sort of decisive issue in Doha. Um, and, and so the question is, um, is, is geopolitics now going to play a bigger role in oil markets? Is that, is that something we should look to? Well, you know, I, I almost think of this the same way we thought about the question about should we be surprised that Doha fell apart. I mean, if you listen to the sort of oil ministry, they've been trying to say, yeah, politics isn't part of this, and you know, we, we, we decide things only on sort of uh, supply and demand fundamentals. And, you know, Naomi's whole 20-year career has been built on trying to divorce the politics from the oil, or at least, you know, put that perception out there. But I, I think in an era of, of heightened geopolitical tension and sort of as Amina said, the sort of age of unpredictability with this new deputy crown prince in a position we haven't really seen in, in the level to, to ex- exercise the amount of power that he's exercising. Uh, and and in, in the situation where we know Saudi Arabia is has a heightened awareness and um, concern about Iran, that that I, I think the sort of manifestation of geopolitics in OPEC, uh, you know, we, we should expect it to continue going forward. So... You know, what does that mean for OPEC? Well, it means that you know probably we're looking at more of the same uh, that we've seen in the last sort of five years or so, where you have real problems agreeing on anything, and um, you, you're going to have your major players, um, you know, Iran and Saudi Arabia, uh, having a real hard time seeing eye to eye on things, unless there's some sort of truce called in in, in the interest of uh, balancing the oil markets, but. I think that the component here, which is interesting, is that you've got Mohammed bin Salman, who who is on the record saying he doesn't care very much about oil prices. So Saudi Arabia says it doesn't care very much about oil prices, and whether you believe that or not, I don't know. But uh, if it says that, um, you know, there's a case that we need to listen to Mohammed bin Salman when he says that. And if that's really what their policy is going to be going forward, then there's not a lot of common ground you can find there between. Uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran, and Iran, a country that is emerging from sanctions, definitely wants higher oil prices. Uh, you know, and and their interests are not going to be aligned, which means you're going to have a real hard time 
getting any sort of agreement. Hey, thanks, thanks, Alex. So, so I'm gonna another question for you. Um, where does this outcome uh, leave non-OPEC producers like Russia, who you know stake quite a lot on this, and 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 what can we expect from the the June OPEC meeting? Uh, I think after shocking everybody in Doha, the Saudis want to let things settle a little, a little bit before uh, June, um, where they say that they're going to try to reintroduce the idea of a freeze again um, and try to see if Iran is willing to join. But, uh, however, we, we've, we've already get, gotten the sense from, uh, from a lot of OPEC and non-OPEC states that this plan will fail. Um, the meeting in Doha was supposed to be a first step towards building trust between OPEC and non-OPEC members. And uh, in signing this uh, unbinding agreement, uh, but the Sa I mean, the, the Saudis had perhaps um, broken this trust and future uh, future cooperations between producers seems quite unlikely now. Um, 90, when Naimi presented that second draft of the agreement that stated that all OPEC members needed to be part of the deal, um, as I mentioned before, the Russian delegation wanted to step out of the meeting but were convinced to stay. And uh, we've heard from officials uh, during the Moscow conference, which is going, ongoing right now, that Russia uh, is, doesn't think the freeze deal would work. And uh, following the Doha meeting, the uh, Russian energy minister Novak told reporters that OPEC needs to get its house in order before inviting non-OPEC members again. So, um, summary, I don't see non-OPEC members rushing to meet with OPEC um, anytime soon after this disappointment. Okay. Um, so, Alex, um, longer term, what does the Doha failure mean for this widely expected uh, or hope for rebalancing of the oil market, um, and also what does it mean for the emergence of some new form of oil market management, which, which is what this, you know, Doha freeze was meant to be sort of a first step toward. Yeah, I, I think I think there was a bit of a naive, well, it's, it looks naive now, but a bit, a bit of a naive assumption that uh, this group of 18 countries could form the basis of future market management and uh, could help sort of share the load of, of managing a market that, that has changed you know, with the addition of U.S. shale uh, into the mix, um, and, and that somehow you know, this, this sort of group could find common cause that in the future if they needed to make more sort of uh, interventionist measures you know, such as cuts, that perhaps this group could be relied on to do something like that. Now, now, of course, in the aftermath, that looks sort of comical and a bit silly, but you know that was that was part of the message that was coming out, um, you know, uh, before the meeting. And, and and I think you know, we okay, that might be a little bit that might have been a little bit too uh, too optimistic, but I think it also was realistic in the fact that they also knew that OPEC by itself is not going to be able to do a lot of market management uh, on its own particularly given the Saudi resistance to do things without major major producers like Russia and other non-OPEC producers. So there, there was, um, you know, so anyway, that whole thing you know, fell apart. So now what are we left with? Well, we're left with the situation that we've been left with for the last, you know, 20 plus months since the oil price collapsed, which is a situation where you've got, you know, OPEC that's, that's pretty um, dysfunctional as far as 
making decisions to intervene in the market. I, I don't see that happening. Um, but you know, as I said before, the, the freeze itself is was never really going to do very much anyway for fundamentals. So th- there's a few camps of thought of what's going to happen next. One camp um, sort of says that well, the market's rebalancing anyway. You've got sort of demand growth of about 1.2 million barrels a day in 2016. You've got non-LPEC declines of 700 plus thousand barrels a day. So given that sort of um, change in supply and demand sort of uh, fundamentals, you, you you may see rebalancing automatically, no freeze, no cut required by, by the end of the year. Um, you know, I think the Russians have been on the record, if I remember correctly, saying with a freeze, the market could have rebalanced in 2016, and without a freeze, it'll rebalance in 2017. I don't quite know what what they were basing that on, but um, let's just say that you know the Russians are right, so maybe it'll take another six months to actually get this thing done. But but I think a lot of the major producers think the market fundamentals are moving in the right direction anyway. Freeze or no freeze, cut or no cut. Um, I think there's a lot of agreement on that. Uh, the question is. Um, more on the inventories and how those are going to be drawn down. And again, there are different camps, but uh, one camp seems to think that inventories can be taken care of by them just by market forces. And I would put sort of um, you know, the Saudi delegation, some definitely some Gulf delegations in that category, uh, where they think these record inventories can be drawn down. And then you have another group that says, look, that even if the market rebalances by itself, there's no way inventories are going to be drawn down. Uh, unless we intervene in the market. And and those are sort of what we can call terms of uh, medium-term cutbackers. And, and, and these say that, like, we can't, um, yeah, it, say, say we can't do that now, but um, but we need to maybe do that in the future. And um, I, I think those are the ones that are a little bit disappointed by the failure of this meeting because this meeting was supposed to uh, form the basis of maybe that future cut to deal with those inventories. We all have been naive, I guess. Yeah, um, it's a tough. It, it, it's a you know tough outcome, I guess, for the for the optimists. Um, yeah. What I'm gonna what go, going back to Saudi Arabia. What does this outcome tell us about Saudi Arabia and its long-term oil policy objectives and general direction as a country as a whole? Um, what do you think? Is oh. things changed? Or this is this is. Uh, you know what, what what what's your view um well i definitely think it tells us that uh, mohammed bin salman's role in oil policy and other affairs will have to be taken more seriously by the market um after he had given uh two interviews to uh to bloomberg uh, where he said that uh, saudi arabia will not freeze production uh without iran joining um very few took his words at face value even within the kingdom, um, I've heard theories that uh, the prince was forced by or pushed by his interviewers to, to say these things, and as a political figure, he had to say something uh, against Iran and not to take his words very literally. So um, I think that the kingdom in general is going through a very rapid uh, transformation, and uh, we're seeing unprecedented action and plans being unrolled like uh, the ambitious plan to, to privatize Saudi Aramco by 2018. Um, I think the dangerous element to this, uh, however, is, is mixing up political objectives uh, with oil policy, and that's something we have to watch out for. 
in the sense that that that, that uh, there's you know there, there still will be oil policy won't be completely politicized. It will still have a uh, sort of a uh, I guess an economic market perspective as well. Is that what you mean? Uh, well, I mean the the, the decision that Mohammed bin Salman uh, decided to go with and uh, insisting that Iran would join was I mean it was described as political even by his closest allies. So it's, it's somehow it's unclear what his his objective was. Um, so if he plans to, uh, to to have the political agenda influence uh, oil policy, that's uh, that's that's quite a shift from from what we were used to before. Right, I get it. Okay. All right. Well, um, I think we're we're done with the, sort of the, the this part of the uh, the Q and A. I want to open it up to the audience. Um, uh, if the operator could come back and just remind people how to how to ask questions, and we can uh, get some questions from the floor. Certainly, at this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone telephone. You may withdraw your question at any time by pressing the pound key. If you would like to ask a question today, please press the star and one on your touchtone phone. We'll pause for a moment to allow questions to queue. And we'll take our first question from Colin Smith. Your line is open. Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my question. Um, I think I certainly concur with the view that Mohammed bin Salman's proving to be much more important than we thought before. And I'm reminded of the circumstances heading into the 2014 meeting uh, in which the technocrats were, were basically uh, following the same line they had before. And then we had the no decision at that point. And, and bearing that in mind, I'm curious as to whether we think we have real clarity about what the oil policy is under under him. I mean, for example, why is 10.2 million barrels a day the right number? Because if the original reason for not uh, having a change in, in response to low oil prices was to uh, have low-cost oil compete with higher-cost oil, what's to stop Saudi just pushing up production to use the spare capacity it has? Alex, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, sure. Colin, I think this question has come up a lot, uh, or not a lot, but people are wondering the same thing. If if you're trying to maximize low-cost production, then why hold back any of your production? And, I, you know, it, it's, a, it's a good argument. Um, in fact, I was talking about this with Tom yesterday, um, and then we were discussing, and he asked the same question. Um, my My initial reaction was that it's, uh, jacking up production would be seen as a fairly aggressive move, and you know while you know I guess we can say OPEC dynamics are not all that particularly um, sort of uh, in, in the best place they've been in, uh, in, in the history of the group. It um, still doing that would be seen as, as really kind of aggressively, uh, actively pushing the price down, and and you may, uh, I mean th th there have been wars started for for things like this before, and you know, maybe you know that they are perfectly happy to let market forces do the work for them without, with, with, while pretending that they're not actually actively doing that. So, I mean, that that would be one, you know, one sort of uh, answer to that question. The other one would maybe be that maybe we are trying to read it, 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 into a policy when there really isn't one. And you know, I think you know you've been following this as much as we have since 2014. 
and trying to sort of weave a kind of common thread from their their views in September 2014 all the way up to April 2016. I mean, we've we've tried to kind of do it, but in the end, there is this kind of make it up as we go along kind of attitude, and it isn't really consistent in some ways. And uh, it may just be they're kind of just reacting, and they're not really there's not really a coherent policy behind it. And the the inter, last minute intervention by a by a Saudi royal kind of suggests that. You know, there is a bit of that erraticness to it. Thank you. Okay. And as a reminder, sorry, sorry as ahead. a reminder, if you'd like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone phone. We'll pause for another moment to allow questions to queue. And once again, that is star and one if you'd like to ask a question today. Okay, I, uh, operator. I, 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 while we're waiting for the questions to queue, I can uh, throw a couple of other questions out to, to Alex and Amina. Um, so, so Amina, what, what, what about Iran and Iraq and all of this? I mean, where do they stand now, and and, and how are they likely to respond to this? Are they are they um, are they are they likely to change? In, or I'm speaking specifically of Iran. Um, you know, because of the, uh, in response to what the Saudis have done here, or um, how do you see that? Um, no, I don't see Iran changing its position. Um, right a, a day after the meeting, um, uh, the Iranian oil minister Zangani uh, released a statement saying that um, Iran uh, will continue to defend its right to increase production to pre-sanctioned levels, and he also said that. Um, Iran is not responsible for the oversupply in the market. So um, I don't see them changing their mind in June and agreeing to a production freeze. Um, while Iraq is a little bit different, I mean, Iraq, uh, they had a representative uh, present in Doha, and they were, um, they were okay with, with freezing production, even if Iran wasn't part of the deal. Um, however, we've, we've seen in the OPEC reports that uh, the Iraqis had uh, jacked up their production figures a little bit for uh, uh, for for January, um, which suggests that uh, I mean they would they would freeze, but at, at a higher level. Even though their production didn't, the, the, according to secondary sources, their actual production didn't match with the numbers that they officially reported. Okay, th th thanks for that. Is there, are, are there are there any questions now from the floor? Operator? We do have a couple of phone questions. We'll go first okay. to Dana Ignatovich. Your line is open. Hi, um, I was just wondering, um, like this, we're talking about the supply side a lot for OPEC members, but do, do you know, have a sense yet at what price shale production in the U.S. would start to come back? Well, like that's a, price yeah, that, I think I think that's that, that's one of the, the the big unknowns. I mean, we you know we we have all this uncertainty, um, you know, about Saudi Arabia and OPEC policy and so forth, and the, you know the other big kind of unknown uncertainty is. Is shale production and how it reacts, um, but I think that you know we, you know what, what our understanding is that is that the U.S. shale oil producers are still very much hurting at, at you know current forty dollar prices. It's not enough, um, and um, you know the the talk has been that like a fifty dollar price would be um, you know sort of tolerable, uh, but you wouldn't get growth until you get say sixty dollars or something like that per barrel. You wouldn't get significant you know growth in uh, in, in shale production. Um, that's that's sort of I think what our current reading is, um, but um, 
you know, that, and that's obviously one of the things that's sort of capping uh, the price outlook uh, is this, uh, you know, this, this shale potential that's sitting out there. Okay, thank you. And as a reminder, if you'd like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone phone. We have a follow-up from Colin Smith. Your line is open. Yep, thanks for taking my question. Um, again, just coming back to what happens um, in terms of presenting or representing Saudi Arabia, I wonder if you could comment on just where you think all of this leaves uh, Ali Naimi and whether who his replacement might be uh, under the circumstances in which it doesn't really look as though the oil minister and the technocrats represent any more what Saudi Arabia actually thinks or is going to do. That's an interesting question. Um, Amin or Alex, we, we, you know, it's, a, it's sort of a, a jump ball here, whatever you want to either of you. Well, let me let me start, and I think I'm gonna should should take the bulk of this. But I, yeah, I mean, sure. I would say that um, first of all, we don't know uh, whether this is a systematic shift away from the technocrats or a kind of shot across the bow of uh, Ali Naimi to say, look, you know, I'm the one in charge, or just or just the kind of reminder of the oil market saying, okay, look, I'm 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 the guy in charge. Ultimately, don't ignore what I'm saying. Um, so it could be a situation where he's just sort of stepped in at this point, made a bit of a point, and then he's going to step back and let Naomi do his job, and Naomi will continue doing his job the way he's been doing it for the last couple of years, or, or at least under under Mohammed bin Salman. So, you know, that's as that's we have to consider that as much as the sort of implication you're throwing out there, which is basically that this is a marginalization, uh, the start of a marginalization of Naimi and, and the start of a shift to the kind of core oil policy being in charge of Mohammed bin Salman. But I, I don't know, Amina, what do you think? Well, I think that we've heard about Naimi leaving the ministry uh, several times and uh, every time uh, we, he, he stays in uh, his position. Um, but I've definitely heard the other side of the story where uh, Mohammed bin Salman wants to take absolute full control of oil policy, and uh, this might lead to Naimi's uh, retirement soon. And uh, what I've heard is that perhaps the next oil minister would be someone that uh, Mohammed bin Salman could fully control, um, not necessarily a prominent figure that, uh, or a prominent name that we know in the oil industry. They would uh, choose somebody who would uh, who would be okay with with just taking orders from uh, from Mohammed bin Salman. But again, I mean, this is all speculation, and it's still unclear what what would happen. Thank you. Hey, thanks. Um, do we have other questions? We do have another question. We'll go now to Paul Bradley. Your line is open. Uh, thank you. Uh, we're just, we've talked a lot about sort of what happened at the meeting and, and sort of the outlook for OPEC as a whole. Could you uh, opine perhaps on what you think might be in the best interest of Saudi Arabia to sort of frame up where they might go from here? Alex or Amna, do you want to, I mean... Paul, so what, what do you mean by that? How, uh, what Saudi Arabia wants? Well, you know, Saudi Arabia is going through a period where they're trying to restructure their economy a little bit, and that's been driven by some of the price 
uh, pressures that they've been under. And they've always been sort of looked at in the context of OPEC. But really, if you took the Saudi perspective, what do you think would drive them to do, you know, something else? Uh, you know, what's in the best interest of their economy? What's in the best interest of their uh, political, you know, from their perspective, what would give them the maximum value? Well, I think if we take, so, so let's take Mohammed bin Salman's policy and his power at its, well, let's just assume he's the one making the calls, which, you know, I think we can, I mean, it, it's a reasonable assumption, but it's not for sure. But at least what he's shared with us or shared publicly uh, is that he sees a um, broad transformation of the economy because I think maybe the point you're getting at here is that an oil-dependent economy um, in the next 20 years is not going to be sustainable for uh, Saudi Arabia and its requirements, both for its population and employment and GDP and debt and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and and that's, that's been based very closely on, on a study that McKinsey has, been, has done for them and, and continues to do with them on you know, the, the long-term outlook of an oil-dependent economy if you don't have major reforms. So the cosmetic reforms of kind of you know, you know, uh, lifting gasoline prices to 24 cents a liter from you know, under 10 cents, uh, you know, that's not going to get it done. You, you need a whole-scale overhaul of the economy. And in that sense, I think this is where it gets a little bit, um, we're in a little bit of uncharted territory with how Saudi Arabia may approach its oil policy, because in that situation, it doesn't quite matter what the oil price is. And, and in fact, the lower the oil price is, the more um, motivation or the more attraction there is in reform. Because um, I think when the price goes back up, we've seen that the reform initiatives kind of disappear and go away. But low prices, everyone knows they got to get their act together to find some way to generate more non-oil revenue. So if if we think that, you know, this sort of McKinsey outlook of the kingdom it, it is the one that they're going to actually go by, then, um, you know, uh, th- then we really have to say, well, th- th- this is um, maybe a, a shift in the kingdom and the way they're going to conduct, uh, conduct their policy going forward. Um, so uh, that means what Amina pointed out, these sort of IPOs of Aramco. Um, it, it means commercializing whatever uh, state assets there, there are out there to be, to be sort of monetized, privatized, and, and trying to move the economy from a state-run, oil-driven economy into an economy that's not oil-driven and, and driven by the private sector. And in all those scenarios, you may find a different sort of oil policy going forward, to achieve those goals than the kind of oil policy that we've seen up until now, which is basically uh, finding a way to ensure the place of oil in the global economy by getting a price that is fair for consumers and producers and consumers, um, but you know, at the same time making sure everyone, uh, all oil producers, get enough money to actually run and fund their budgets. I'm gonna, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I also think, I mean, a part, of course, uh, lower oil prices would uh, would encourage uh, economic reforms. But also from a political uh, side, I, I mean, one of one of the main uh, concerns for Saudi Arabia is Iran and the emergence of Iran as uh, a regional uh, uh, power. So having low oil prices also achieves that political objective. So um, I, I think the policy works both ways. 
Okay, thank you. Um, do we have any one last question, operator? We have no further questions at this time. Okay, I guess we we are uh, out of time here. So um, uh, with that, I'd like to wrap it up and thank everyone. Thank Alex and Amina, and also thank everybody for participating. And um, just remind you that we will be having another of these virtual roundtables come uh, about mid-May, and we'll be sending you information about that in the future. Thank you, everyone.